Uh, Let's ask God to help us with his word. Please pray with me. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for sending your Son, our Lord Jesus, into the world. And we thank you uh, that in your mercy he appointed apostles who could bring his message, his gospel, to all the world. Our Father, we pray that we would receive this word as it is, the word of our Lord Jesus, the word of God. We would understand it and by your grace we would so trust him that we would put it into practice. And help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you're looking at the groceries in the trolley or opening up that electricity bill, when you're trying to get a scan for that knee, you twisted playing sport, or you're paying your rent, or, you know, dream of it, you're booking a place for a holiday, you know money matters, that it's important to have money and to have enough of it. And money really matters in our society. Turn on the news and you'll get a stock market update, a discussion of the market outlook, commodity prices and where the dollar stands against other currencies. And you may have noticed uh, that we're having a debate or we've been having a debate about whether you can take money out of super and whether that can be used for a housing deposit. Actually, both of those options are really communicating that money is the way to secure our future. Good as it is to have a house and a super balance, you see, the underlying message is clear, that the accumulation of money is what we need to be settled and safe. Our society believes money, wealth, will secure our future, and money's not just needed for security, is it? We're also encouraged through every medium to spend and buy whether on experiences or possessions, because using our money on ourselves, we're told, is the path to happiness. So all around you, people are thinking and talking about money, how much you should have, how you can get it, how you should spend it, what return you should get on it, what it can do for you. And maybe, of course, that discussion is not just happening around you. Maybe those discussions are taking place in your own head as well. Jesus, as you heard, also talks about money and possessions and how his followers should use them. But he has quite a different take on what you should do with your money and on where your security lies. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, he says, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus' investment advice is clear. Investment, laying up wealth for yourselves in this life, is always going to be insecure and uncertain. In Jesus' world, their wealth was either in good clothes, which were an expensive luxury, or coin, hard currency, which people would store in strong boxes in their homes or bury under the floor of their homes. So moths and rusts were real dangers. 
They could really leave a hole in your wealth strategy. And so could thieves. Walls made of mud could be easily dug through and your wealth taken. Now we have banks, but our material wealth is still insecure. A couple of months ago, I looked at my credit card statement to find that I'd been buying truck parts in Queensland, which was a surprise, uh, not owning a truck. Uh, and uh, the bank, surprised by a changed spending patterns, alerted my sister to the fact that her identity had been stolen. Somebody had taken the stuff out of a letterbox. Uh, yeah, there are actually people out there still uh, who are trying to relieve us of our wealth and they stick at it because they often succeed, leaving their victims poorer. Our stock markets can fall. Companies, including building societies, can go bust. Anybody here from Geelong? Remember the Pyramid Building Society, 1990? All that wealth just down the drain. Our houses in which Australians invest so much can be destroyed by fire and flood and white ants. At other times, inflation can eat away at your savings, or as a retiree, you can be confronted with zero interest rates and lose your income. Wealth in this life is so uncertain. And in the end, you will lose it all anyway. You brought nothing into the world, and you'll take nothing of this world with you when you leave. But Jesus says there is a better place to invest, to store up treasure, and that's heaven. No stock market crashes there, no white ants, no thieves or scammers. What you store up there will be secure forever. And storing up treasure in heaven has the added benefit that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you invest in heaven, your heart, that's your mind and will, the core of your being, will be directed to heaven, given to eternal things, to the things that please God who rules in heaven. And that is good for our following of Jesus because our hearts should be given to the things that please God. And your heart will also find its security in the security of God's reign, in his unchanging faithfulness to his word. So when your treasure is in heaven, your heart also will be secure not driven to dismay by every moth hole in your clothes, every percentage point that goes from the deposit interest rates, made anxious or elated by the movement in house prices. Investment in heaven is secure and health-giving, freeing you up from the changes and chances of life to dwell securely as you give yourself to the rule of heaven's King Jesus and to look to the future he gives you with confidence. Disciples of Jesus can and should, says Jesus, store up treasure in heaven, make their investment in God's reign. But how do we actually do that? How do we store up treasure in heaven? You can't walk up to the uh, heavenly teller and make a deposit. Well, verses 22 to 24 actually tell us. We store up treasure in heaven by generosity to the needy and using our money as God directs. And then verses 25 to 34 will tell us how to resist the anxiety that would prevent us from following Jesus' investment strategy. Now, the first bit of direction about how to store up treasure in heaven, uh, verses 22 to 23, is a little enigmatic and does need some unpacking. The eye is the lamp of the body. 
So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now Jesus is taking the commonly held belief in his day that the eye like a lamp illuminates our lives. And then he's using that and a play on words to contrast two ways of seeing the world and engaging with the needs of others. You see, the word translated healthy, hapless, is a word that can have the sense both of focus, single-mindedness, and also of generosity. A sound, a healthy eye, is a generous eye. The phrase translated eye is bad is literally an evil eye. And that was an idiom for greed or covetousness, for stingy meanness. So Jesus is contrasting two ways of looking on the world, of illuminating your path in life. You can conduct yourself generously towards others, responding to the needs of the poor and sharing what you have, or you you can conduct yourself meanly, keeping what you have to you, what you have to and for yourself alone, withholding help that should be given. Now, one way, the way of generosity, fills your life with light. It is like light, life-giving and security-bringing. The other, the way of greedy selfishness, is a path of impenetrable darkness, anxiety-bringing and life-denying. For what should illuminate our lives is already blackness. How great is that darkness, says our Lord. We store up treasure in heaven firstly by having a sound eye, an eye that deals generously with the needy as God expects us to. And there are lots of references uh, to that in the handout. And we store up treasure in heaven secondly by serving God single-mindedly with our money. No one, says our Lord, can serve two masters, for he either he will hate the one and love the other, or she will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What Jesus says is true. The word Jesus uses for serve is the word for the service of a slave. Exclusive ownership and exclusive loyalty are of the nature of being a slave. You cannot take direction from and give your loyalty to two different people at the one time. So Jesus says you cannot let money compete with God for your loyalty. And the word for money here is mammon, and that's a word that was used for money and property, all material wealth. To serve mammon is to be directed in life by a desire to gain more to accumulate wealth. It's to make your choices on the basis of what will enrich you because you see money as a source of security, power and happiness. Such a service will always compete with doing what God says. If you're to store up treasure in heaven, then the God of heaven must be your master. He must direct your life and especially how you use mammon, the property and money he entrusts to you. Where God's your master, then money won't be your master, but your servant in the service of the one from whom all good things come. When you serve God, the way you use your money in obedience to God becomes a means of storing up treasure in heaven. 
So how will God, being the master you love and are devoted to, show in your use of money? Well, it will be by following his instructions on what you do with your money. So what does he say in his word you should spend your money on? And again, the references are in the handout. You should read and reflect on them. I'm going to go through uh, these quickly. Uh, The scripture says you should use your money, firstly, 1 Thessalonians 4, to support yourself and make sure you're dependent on no one. 1 Timothy 5, to care for your family. Romans 13, to pay tax. Oh, you should use your money to be honest in business dealings, paying the wages of those you employ, the bills of the providers of goods and services. You should use your money, 2 Corinthians, to be generous to the poor. And yes, to support gospel ministry locally and further afield. These are all things God says you should use your money on. But living his way will have more consequences for our wealth. You see, think of the life that Jesus calls his people to in the chapters of Matthew that precedes, and you can read them. You know, Jesus has said that the meek, the merciful, are blessed. Oh, that we ought to be forgiving, generous to those who ask. Now, all that will cost. The debt you forgive is money you forgo. What you give may never come back. Being meek, not insisting on your right to promote the interests of others, might mean you lose now. And Jesus has called us to be willing to suffer, including suffering economic loss as we are persecuted for his sake. Like the widows in Acts 6 who were excluded from the synagogue distribution for loyalty to Jesus or the believers the letter of Hebrews was written to who suffered the plundering of their property for the sake of Jesus. Storing up treasure in heaven by being exclusively loyal to God has real world economic consequences. So think, are you using what you have to make eternal investments? Is loyalty to God our Father directing your decisions about money? Are you glad to be able to make an eternal investment now, even if it may mean you grow poorer, less rich than those around you who serve mammon and with whom we are always tempted to compare ourselves? Now, I realised when I was giving this sermon in the morning that as soon as I said, you might grow poor. It was almost as if I'd uttered an obscenity. <laughs> we don't talk like that in our society. You never. It's, life's always meant to go in one direction, isn't it? Becoming poorer, even if only relatively, in an age of comparison and competition, in a world where so much is uncertain, well, that's the possibility, isn't it, that can make us hesitate to embrace Jesus' life-giving strategy that can provoke anxiety in us about our material welfare, about whether we'll have enough if we serve God, not mammon. So Jesus names this impediment to eternal investing and he addresses it. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. It's easy to be anxious about material things, whether like many of us, you have a lot, Or like most of Jesus' first hearers, 
have very little. That's right, Jesus' first hearers in the main were poor day labourers who were paid each day for the work they did, paid only enough for that day or the next day's food. So if they were off work for a day or two with sickness, there'd be no wage and they'd have to rely on the generosity of family and neighbours. If the season was bad, there might be no work. If there was a famine, the price of food would increase beyond their means and they would know hunger. They had rational grounds for anxiety about having enough. And us? Well, we also have rational grounds for concern about our material security. Like taxi drivers, our industry could be totally disrupted by the gig economy. Or our work could be dependent on, or we could have invested heavily, say, in students from or trade with China and then lost that market because of political disagreements outside our control. We can have our crops washed away by floods, our stocks decimated by drought. Our wealth depends on so much outside our control and our resources are limited. In response to this rational anxiety about our material welfare, Jesus says to his followers, do not be anxious. Do not give way to an anxiety that would stop you from storing up treasure in heaven by using your money as God directs. And he gives them four reasons not to be anxious. And in giving those reasons, he exposes four attitudes that can lie behind our anxiety. So firstly, four arguments against anxiety. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So he says, Jesus, God has already given you the big thing, life itself, this wonderful body we inhabit. In all its complexity and wonder, our lives, our bodies are so much more than the things we're concerned about. Now, if God can give us life, why should we doubt that he can give us these lesser things? Food to sustain our lives, clothes for our body. And as life is his gift, why should we think that he is ignorant of its needs or unable to sustain his gift? Look around you, says Jesus. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God is always sustaining the teeming life of the created natural world. Now, in the city, sometimes we might be less aware of that, but, you know, go for a walk in Banyal Flats or in the Plenty Gorge Park, and there's an abundance of life that often we just take for granted. Yet we don't organise its meals. God does all around the world. And he does it again and again. His provision never exhausted. And people made in God's image are more valuable than they. He won't show less care for us, make less provision. And which of you, says Jesus, by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Why be anxious when anxiety is useless? You don't determine when you're born and you don't determine when you die. All your worrying is not going to mean you live longer beyond the days written for you in God's book. And why are you anxious about clothing? 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, God's not challenged by providing for you and he is no miser. Look at the wildflowers, here today, gone tomorrow but a riot of colours and hues not even Solomon, that proverbially rich king, could rival. See around you the richness and overflowing the profligate generosity of God's provision. He can provide for you. God's providing for all life, all the time, and his is a constant, rich, generous provision. Yes, he provides through work, The birds flit about looking for insects and seeds. This is an argument against anxiety, not for laziness. But our God has no lack of resources or care. If we're his, why should we be anxious about what we need? And in his reasons, these reasons for not being anxious, Jesus actually fingers, in a sense, exposes four attitudes that feed our anxiety despite the obvious ability of the creator God to provide for and his obvious commitment to his people. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body. You see, the first reason for our anxiety is that we underestimate our God's power. Uh, We might think God's uninvolved or only involves himself intermittently. Uh, That actually comes easy to us who are trained in our culture to think the world all goes on without God, who are actually encouraged to deliberately remove God from our world in our thinking. But actually, it is the living God who sustains all life all the time. He feeds, he gives breath to all creatures, as you heard in Psalm 104. We underestimate his power and we underestimate his love and care for his people. Are you not of more value than the birds, says our Lord? Now, we are taught, again, to think that we are not. (laughs) We're taught to think that we are just animals like all the rest. But that's actually not true. Human beings are made in God's image. And God holds creation responsible for its treatment of human life. And here Jesus is talking to his disciples, those whom our God has loved so much that he sent his son into the world to save them. Those he's taught, Jesus has taught, to call our father. Our God has all power and he cares for us. But of course, For many, Jesus' illustrations are robbed of power today by our fearfulness about our world. You know, that fearfulness that the world's all going to go up in smoke or, you know, overheat. You see, our anxiety is heightened by thinking that the world is on the brink of catastrophe because of our selfish and thoughtless greed. Now, God in his justice may give us up to the folly of our sinful greed, But our God's care for his people and his ability to provide for them are not in any way limited 
by human sin. Human sin has never frustrated God from doing what he intends and promises. And our anxiety can actually distort our perception of the world so that we lose sight of what's obvious, the fact that so many are fed, so many are provided for every day, day after day. We should be wise stewards of our world, but not anxious. And just as we underestimate God, we overestimate our own powers. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And we say, oh, you bet we can. You know, if we just diet, exercise, practice mindfulness, retreat, we pursue those extra minutes and years, but to no avail. Diet and exercise are good, but we will die when God says, and sooner or later we recognise that. Yet because we overestimate ourselves when we can't see how we can do something, we think God will be challenged by it. You see, thinking God is like us, and that's what we all do from Adam on, thinking God is like us because we want to think we are like God Well, that is always a recipe for fear and anxiety. So in a sense, our idolatry of ourselves feeds our anxiety. And why are you anxious about clothing? You know, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Here the fundamental problems exposed. Little faith. Not many of us, especially when we've been Christians for a while, like to own up to little faith, do we? But that's actually the issue for most of us. We don't trust God as he deserves to be trusted. When we take our eyes off God's might and faithfulness and generous love, when we cease to meditate on his marvellous works to focus instead on the affairs of our lives and our schemes and plans, our faith becomes stunted and weak. Compared to God's trustworthiness, our faith is totally inadequate. But God is faithful. He is almighty. He is committed to Jesus' people. And Jesus' disciples, those who trust in Jesus, embrace his investment strategy, those who serve God with their money and not make money their God, can rely on the love and care of this almighty God. Therefore, says our Lord, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's the Gentiles, the pagans, those who do not know God, who are constantly preoccupied with pursuing these things, the material necessities and wants of life. And they feed that preoccupation by constantly comparing themselves with each other, measuring their possessions and wealth against what they see of the lives of others, often these days on social media. And the result, they're either fearful they're missing out or being left behind, or they're putting confidence in their possessions, which is so uncertain. And, of course, both make them prey to anxiety. But Jesus' followers are different 
for they've been brought by Jesus to know the true and living God as our Father. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you should reckon with that. The Almighty God is our Heavenly Father. And just as an earthly father provides for his children, our God knows our needs and is committed to our care. Our Father can be trusted to provide for us and keep us. And that means Jesus' followers are free to live different lives, marked by a different pursuit, free to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, says our Lord, will be added to us. God's kingdom and righteousness are God's reign and what he says is consistent with living under his reign. And Jesus in this sermon from Matthew 5 on has just been teaching his disciples that righteousness. To seek God's kingdom and righteousness then is to seek always to live in accord with God's will revealed in and by Jesus. To live under the authority of God's King Jesus and to promote his reign and reputation. So followers of Jesus, uh, when faced with a choice, will make the first question not what will this give me or how will this enrich me? No, the first question will be, what does God want me to do? What course of action is consistent with being Jesus' follower? Now, that's not WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? No, it's what does Jesus command me to do, call me to do? Seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness is the believer's guide to life. And returning to the beginning of this section, it's actually how we store up treasure in heaven. Seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness definitely includes how we are to use our material wealth and property because that's the focus of the whole section. But it's wider than that. And it's not just one choice, but it's seek on keep on seeking. It's an attitude to life. It's an attitude that determines the way we engage with all our decisions, what to spend our money on or what we save for, when to leave our job or stay in it, where we should live, when we should move, whether we should leave work to give all our time to the work of the gospel or continue in the course we're on. And the promise of God's provision is true. You know, one of the advantages of getting older and uh, you get to a point where there aren't many advantages, right? But one of the advantages of getting older is you see God's faithfulness over time. So I've seen the truth of this life in the life of my parents who at one stage left their medical practice to go and work for a mission society and I've seen it in my own life. I've seen this promise prove true in many who have interrupted their careers. I used to teach at a Bible college, many who left their careers and often their country for the sake of the gospel, to train others or to preach the gospel. I've seen this promise proved true. They're not losers. I've seen this promise proved true in the lives of others who have made choices that seem to go against their material interests for the sake of doing what Jesus said, whether that was being faithful to their word in business or knocking back a promotion so they could stay and care for their parents or give more needed support to their families, whether it was not taking opportunities in sport because it conflicted with their following of Jesus or not pursuing a relationship with someone they were attracted to because it would lead them away from obedience to Jesus. 
Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, says our Lord, and all these things will be yours as well. It's true. And it's seek and keep on seeking. There's never a time in life when this is not the guide for the decisions of Jesus' people, especially about how they use their money. So say you're starting out in work, the first few years at work just left you, and deciding how to use your money. Well, you should actually ask with that first pay packet, how does Jesus want me to use my money? And the answer has to include supporting the work of the gospel and providing for the poor. And when you're starting out, that's a good time to get into the habit of using your money to store up treasure in heaven, using the little you have the way he says because you trust Jesus. But this promise will also be your guide in the middle of life when you've got many responsibilities and costs and you face real choices to go, you know, get this now or put it off or to extend your loan to the max to get that house or leave some to give away. It continues to be your guide. And this promise will continue to be your guide when you're older, you know, when you're wondering whether to max up the super in pursuit of the best possible retirement life or keep giving and giving generously because now your costs are less. Now, those are all individual choices. But as followers of Jesus, we should think hard. And I hope, like me, you would be embarrassed to die rich in the things of this life because you'd miss the opportunity to store up treasure in heaven. Won't that be embarrassing when you stand before the Lord Jesus? Storing up treasure in heaven is a lifetime investment strategy. And seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness is the lifetime pursuit of Jesus' followers. Because we trust our Saviour and he has brought us to know the living almighty God as our heavenly Father. But Jesus has one final word on anxiety and I think it's an important final word for us. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient to the day is its own trouble. Now I've read Matthew 6 heaps of times and I've often viewed this verse as just something tacked on after the real climax of the section of verse 33. Uh, But then, as you know, came the lockdown and I was forced to realise that anxiety about tomorrow was a reality in my life. And I suspect I've not been alone in that. I mean, I had food, shelter, pleasant company, useful things to do, but I sensed a real anxiety in my heart. Anxiety about the future, about the future of the church, about the economy, the nation, about what would happen, say, when JobKeeper stopped. And anxiety fed by constant media commentary. Now, is that just me? Or did some of you experience that as well? And anxiety about tomorrow is something else society cultivates even in normal times. Because if they can make you anxious about tomorrow, they can direct the way you spend your money today. And they do make you anxious about whether you'll be able to get into the housing market, whether your job's secure, whether you get the right job. And anxiety about tomorrow is actually something we are trapped in. 
by our individualism, our trust in and reliance on ourselves. Because let's face it, when you only have yourself in this uncertain world, if you only have yourself to rely on, you have every reason to be anxious. I realised during the lockdown that we do spend a lot of time not being anxious about being able to get food and clothing like first century labourers. We're often anxious about losing in the future what we enjoy now. But Jesus tells us not to be anxious about tomorrow because like the length of our lives, tomorrow is outside of our control. And you notice he says, therefore, therefore do not be anxious. Therefore, because of our Father's commitment to provide all we need, we should not be anxious. What our Father gives us, we will possess securely until he takes it away for our own good. If we can trust him for the present, we can trust him for the future. And his provision is actually our only hope for the present and the future. He will be faithful to his promises. And so we mustn't let anxiety about the future distract us from present obedience, from responding as believers, those who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness to present trials and present challenges. Now, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, well, you should hear Jesus say that there is actually a better life, one where trusting him, you know the eternal, eternal almighty God as your heavenly father, a better life freed in this uncertain world by that relationship from anxiety about your daily needs, a life where you can actually do now what will matter for eternity, where you can invest now with what you cannot keep to gain what you will never lose. And so if you're not yet a believer, you should find out if this could be your life by finding out if Jesus knows what he's talking about, if he's trustworthy. And we'd love to help you do that by going through a life of Jesus with you in Christianity Explored. And if you want to find out about Jesus, enrol in that course. But if you're a believer, you should recognise what is obvious. We are under constant pressure to store up treasure on earth. Constant pressure to find our security and significance in our material wealth and possessions. And yes, constant pressure to think that you can have it all. You can serve God and serve money. You don't need to be different. That message is persistent and pervasive in our society. But conforming your life to it will leave you eternally poorer. And so every one of us, every believer, needs to be continually asking these three questions. Where am I investing, heaven or earth? If somebody looked at the way you use your money, you know, they got your bank statements, they ran through the credits and debits, would it look different to your non-believing neighbour? Not just more prudent or more self-controlled, but heaven-focused? Your money used on what God says you should use your money on? First question, where are you investing? Second question, what are you seeking? What's guiding your life choices? Where you live, the work you accept, the money you spend? Is it the reign and righteousness of King Jesus? 
or your own wants and desires? Where am I investing? What am I seeking? And thirdly, what am I worrying about and why? What does it say of my trust in my Father's goodness, power, care and trustworthiness? You should ask yourself those questions constantly. And if we find in answering those questions that we are being conformed to the world in our use of money and the decisions we make, we'll do what believers do. Turn to our Lord Jesus. Ask his forgiveness for not being directed by his word and ask him for grace to trust him as he deserves so that we do seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and come to know our heavenly Father's sure and certain provision. Our Lord Jesus speaks for our good, to give us a life free from anxiety about material things, a life focused on our Father and doing his goodwill, a life we can live to store up a secure and eternal treasure. So listen to him. Start and keep on investing in eternity because you trust your Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, money is a constant part of our life. Uh, Material wealth is always paraded before us as the great goal. Help us not to be conformed to this world but transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we would prove your will is good, acceptable and perfect. In your mercy, help us to be people who hear and put into practice what we hear today and for the rest of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.